and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Polygamer. My name is Ken Gagney and this past week in the United States, Canada and perhaps other parts of the world, we celebrated Father's Day, a day dedicated to acknowledging, honoring and thanking the men who made many of us the people we are today. Last year at this time, I celebrated Father's Day by doing a video interview of my father. He is the person who got me not only into video games, but also Star Trek, science fiction, fantasy, and so many other elements of my life that have just permeated the person I am today and have shaped the course of my life in so many subtle and significant ways. This video was posted to my YouTube channel, which is all about video games, so that was the focus of the interview. We shot for about 20 minutes, and then I pared it down to about 8 minutes, put it up on YouTube, and was happy to have that memory of my father to share with everybody. In the year since that video went up, I, of course, launched my two podcasts, Polygamer and IndieCider. Polygamer is about equality and diversity in video games by representing a variety of voices that you may not traditionally hear in mainstream media. And this year, I decided to revisit the topics that my father and I discussed in that video by having him as the guest on this week's episode of Polygamer. Now, you may consider this to be a selfish topic. After all, Polygamer is supposed to represent diverse voices in the gaming industry, and my father is a straight, white, cisgendered male, of which there already is one on this show and on every episode of Polygamer. Me. But then my friend Rosie pointed out that if you, my listeners, are anything like me, then my father represents a demographic that you find just as inscrutable as anybody else I've ever had on this show. How many of us can truly say we understand our fathers and where they're coming from? I know I can't, but I think I do a little bit better after having conducted this interview. My father is presently in his 70s, having been born in the 40s, and over the course of this interview, you'll learn much about what qualified as entertainment throughout all the decades of his life, as well as his opinions and perspectives on the gaming industry today, and the decisions he made that shaped me into becoming the gamer and podcaster I am today. He is the oldest person I've ever had on this show, so in that respect, if no other, he certainly represents a diverse viewpoint. A couple of technical notes, this was my father's first time using either Skype or a headset, and also my own microphone that I've been using for every episode of Polygamer recently died, and I've been experimenting with some alternatives. I can tell you right now that after listening to this interview, you'll agree, I need a pop filter. So my apologies for that. Some other background, I was born in the 70s, and I'm the youngest of four sons, and my father and I may be discussing those siblings at some point. There will be links in the show notes to many of the items that we discuss, including the video interview that we conducted last year. So if you want to find out more about my father or any of the topics he brings up, go ahead and click on those links on polygamer.net, where you can also find links to our Facebook, a Google+, and Twitter accounts. Thank you for indulging me in this opportunity to get to know my father better. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Today I have the rare and dubious honor of being joined by my very own father, Mr. Edward F. Gagney. Hi, Dad. Hi, Ken. How are we doing? I'm good. How are you? No complaints here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This is going to be one of the most unusual episodes I've ever recorded. Hmm. Why is that? Throughout the history of this show, I've interviewed strangers, I've interviewed friends, coworkers, acquaintances, but I've never interviewed anybody who I know as well as you, nor anybody who knows me as well as you do. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a little worried about what our listeners are about to find out about me. Mm -hmm. Then let's get started. Excellent. So I'm really curious to know all about your history with video games, the family's history with video games. We talked a little bit about some of that last summer when I shot the video, 
but I'm, I want to go a little bit farther back this time because you were born well before video games were even a thing. You were born during World War II back in the 40s. Right. That's when television wasn't even uh, commercially available. So did you grow up in a household without television? Did you and your family just sit around the radio listening to radio shows like The Shadow? Oh, absolutely. That was the highlight of the week. Mm-hmm. That was something. Was it a routine? Like every, you would have dinner as a family and then go into the living room and pile around the radio? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And what kind of radio shows did you listen to? I mentioned The Shadow and I myself like Jack Benny. Were there other shows or serials that you enjoyed? Well, yeah, Jack Benny. You even you had Gene Autry, uh, a singing cowboy. Oh wow! <laughs> and Roy Rogers, also a singing cowboy, also good. So you may have listened to radio shows, but those were maybe like for an hour a day or a week. What would you generally do for fun? You weren't sitting around surfing the web or playing Game Boy. When your parents said, "Now go out and have fun," what did you what did you do? You always had kick the can. If the weather permitting, you went outside and you you would put a can in the middle of the driveway and somebody would kick it as far as they could go. And then if you were the one that was, say, it, you had to go run and chase it and put it back in the center of where it was. So now you would have to go looking for all of the participants that were that you were playing with and tag them if you tag them all if you found them all and tag them all then uh somebody else would have to take your place and you would do that for hours on end it was it was it was uh that was a lot of as, as boring or stupid as it sounds today that was fun then and we enjoyed it how many people would you play with at a time Oh, there was one, two, three, maybe four or five at the most. You you didn't have a gang, say, of of, of uh, ten or or even eight or something like that. No, I don't think it went above five. And these were all just kids from the neighborhood that you would get together of different ages. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You would just go out in the middle of the yard and and yell. Hey, we're going to have a, a game of such and such. Anybody want to come out and play? And they, they'd come out, those that could, and, and that would start the game. Huh? Then, then the, the other thing, and I tell people this, and they don't believe me, but it's true. When we would get a torrential downpour, it would start off, and it'd be lightning and thunder. Uh, your grandfather, my father, he would give us all each a, a bar of soap. And send us outside to take a shower. And and we'd use the soap. We'd soap all up and everything. We'd be just in our bathing suits on the lawn and soaping up and washing up. And we'd be having a grand old time. And in the pouring rain, and, and if it uh, happened to crack some lightning, we'd, we'd, we'd duck up against the house or whatever. Like that was going to protect us. And that, that, was, that was fun. In those days. Today, why, my goodness, they, they, they'd have your grandfather put away for for uh, in child endangerment. <laughs> was he trying to save on the water bill by getting you to shower outside instead of inside? Yeah, 
that's all it was. It was just, and it was fun. Yeah, all of the, us kids enjoyed that. <laughs> you just mentioned that my grandfather would have put, been put away for child endangerment. And nowadays, there are a lot of things that parents are concerned about letting their kids do or not do, like too much of television or exposing them to video games when they're too young or whatever. Was there anything you enjoyed as a kid that was frowned upon or which the older generation was concerned about? Gee, not really. Uh, everything, you got to remember, radio was our grandparents grew up with it, we'll say. That, that came, it became commercially available in the 30s, even in, even in the late 20s. But irregardless, um, then when TV came out in, in the late 40s, early 50s, it was even new to our grandparents. So it was, it was a, a new thing for them, too, and not something that they, anybody looked at as, as addictive or this or that or whatever. A lot of people said, oh, that's, there, goes, there goes all of your movie theaters. They're going to go out of business now. That didn't happen. People still, they'd, they'd watch their TV. They, you, now, even we would watch something at night they, they, they'd have their prime time show and then believe it or not because there was so little new content in those days they'd play it the next day all day it, it'd get done running for an hour and it'd start right over again it wasn't a matter of becoming addictive to anything you had nothing to become addicted to <laughs> did your household get one of those early televisions in the late 40s early 50s Yes, we had one, and, and it was like, I want to say, maybe a 10 to 12-inch screen tops, and you it had no horizontal or vertical control on it. You'd turn it on, and the screen would be just, it'd be like scrolling, 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 so there was, there was a little handle on the side that you would slowly turn to so-called adjust it and get it in, in, into uh, perspective, whether the horizontal or vertical. Well, 10 to 12 inches, it's just a little black and white set-top box. You, you, pr- you practically went blind looking at it. And you had to get up very close. And, and that's where it, it came about that people said, don't, hey, wait, stop sitting so close to the TV. Well, uh, this was after they got bigger and bigger, and you said it was just a habit. From when they were first came out, when they were so so very small, you had no choice. That was the only way you could see it. And nowadays, we're living in such well, those who can afford it like to have these luxurious living rooms that are spacious, and thus they need to have a seventy-inch television so that when they're sitting on the other side of the room, they can see it all. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's quite the luxury that you didn't have. Oh yeah, that's for sure. Huh. Two other, call it eras, I didn't grow up in, but were, were, they kind of uh, preceded me. One is the board game era. Uh, when you stop and think of it, the early or late 1800s and early 1900s were the, were the epitome of board games. That's when Monopoly was, was invented, if you will. Uh, you, you had easy money. You had 
all kinds of other board games that you actually in in those days in a house they had a huge box that would have all of these games in that box and as a treat to the kids parents would say go and pick out one game and we'll all play it on a kitchen table and that that's what they would do that was their 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 evenings entertainment then you obviously had the puzzle era where the whole families uh, and even neighborhoods, if you will, would would get together and do a do a a thousand or two thousand plus piece puzzle, and that was therefore another form of entertainment that's kind of passed by. You go to some places where, and I've seen it primarily in healthcare uh, venues, where they'll have a a partially done puzzle on a what they call a puzzle table so that people coming in and they're going to be starting a regimen of chemotherapy or whatever they'll be sitting there just for an hour or so and they'll start picking up pieces and adding it to the puzzle and that's about the the, the what's left of the remnants of the puzzle era era yeah, according to Wikipedia, both Monopoly and Easy Money came out in 1935, which would means that they still would have been fairly new around the time you were born. Mm, possibly, possibly. I thought they came out even earlier than that, to be honest with you. I'm sure board games in general are much older, but those two particular yeah. ones were right in the middle of the 30s. Because you had like Parcheesi and, and and multiple others that I can't think of. Yeah, Parcheesi, I think... Again, according to Wikipedia, it dates back to the year 500. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> You're not quite that old, Dad. I don't think so. <laughs> and jigsaw puzzles and board games, certainly their popularity have waxed and waned over the years. Right now, board games are actually becoming more popular. There was a big story recently about this game called Settlers of Catan and how the Green Bay Packers play it in their locker room between games. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And when that article came out, the game shop in Green Bay just sold out of every copy of that game. <laughs> I'll be done. In fact, a friend of mine and former guest on this show even produced an entire documentary all about the resurgence and popularity of board games. Hmm. That I, I, that I did not know. Board games, unlike computer games, you have to get everybody into one place, but... Right. The cost of admission is much cheaper because everybody doesn't have to have their own computer. And you don't have to worry about installing the latest version and getting on the network and installing updates. Yep. So with a board game, everything you need is in the box. You just put it down. One person has bought it. Eight people can play. And uh, I think in this very technological era, there is some appeal to something that's a little old school like that. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Like, like a, a refurbished old car. That you 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 just fawn over. You let me see what's under the hood, or what what size is the trunk, or uh, just curiosity. I found that a lot of people, speaking of cars, tend to when they get older, lust after the cars that their parents had when they were kids. What kind of car were you driven around in as a kid, or did your parents even have cars? I I remember Grandpa with 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 a loader and a and a and a and a truck and things like that but a car 
there was one that they, it's out of style. It's like gone out of business now. They called it the Imperial that he had bought. It was it was supposed to be a luxury car, but it started falling apart right away. <laughs> the Chrysler Imperial from uh, 1955 looks like something you'd see out of an old. Uh, no, I'm sorry. It's actually was produced 1926 to 1954, and it looks like something you'd see in an old Chicago gangster movie. Probably, probably. <laughs> uh, your, your, your grandmother would not even ride in it. It was so horrible. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She was a very, very uh, introverted person when it came to, oh, what will the neighbors think? What will this one think? And everything, and she never wanted to make it look like she was putting on the airs. So she wouldn't even sit in, a, in that car. She'd like a, a plain vanilla envelope car. Nothing uh, ostentatious about it. So you apparently never got a Chrysler Imperial as an adult, but certainly growing up with trucks and loaders, that's something you gravitated toward in your own adulthood. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Always liked nice equipment. Keep it, keep it up, keep it clean, and keep it well-maintained. Now, another medium that was popular when you were a kid is comic books. And in the 50s, there was actually sort of a, a moral panic over, video, over comic books concerned about, especially the genre known as crime comics or horror comics, were going to corrupt kids. But there was a lot of good comics, too, like Superman came out in the late 30s and is still around today. Did you read many comic books as a kid? I would say yes, I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, but now in those days, you also had, you would go and buy a comic book. I think it was for a nickel, uh, maybe a dime. And you would uh, you'd read the whole thing and probably two or three times. Then you'd bring it back to another store, sort of like today's GameStop, and you'd swap it for another comic book for, say, a nickel. And you you would keep doing that all the time. Huh? I've never heard of that. That's interesting. Oh yeah, it was. So you got to. They weren't the brand new, hot off the press comic books at these places. They they were they they were someone else's ragtags, you know. And uh, you you just enjoyed that. Huh? So it's not like today where it, somebody buys a comic book and after they read it. They put it in a bag and they save it and store it away until 50 years later it becomes a collectible. You never kept your comic books. You just kept trading them in to read more of them. That's right. Exactly. Read more old ones. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you never had your own collection of comic books that you kept as an adult or which your parents had to get rid of at some point because you were always swapping them? Unless there was one that was unique to yourself that only you liked. Because you'd bring them back to these comic book swap stores, and the owner would look at it first and say, "Well, I gi- I give you three cents on it, or or whatever." And if you felt whatever he was offering you was really too cheap, you just put it back in your pocket and you left, and you and you collect. And if now you became a collector of that one book, that one that one uh, kind of book. So you were a collector of comic books that nobody wanted to read. You got it. (laughs) (laughs) I've worked at GameStop, and it's something very similar there. People come in with these five, ten-year-old games that they have annual editions of, like 
John Madden football. Okay. And as a retailer, we say, you're, you're trying to sell us Madden 2004. Everybody's playing Madden 2017. Why would they want that old version? So, so either we say we'll give you a dollar for it or we can't take it at all. And some people, since they paid 50 bucks for it when it came out, they want more than a buck for it. So they just say it's not worth it and they keep it. They do. Yeah, just out of spite. Huh. Oh, yeah. So it, it's it's just a, a continuation of something that started uh, 50 plus years ago. Sure. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Just mm-hmm. uh, same practice, different industry. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So that's the in the 40s, you were playing Kick the Can. In 50s, you were reading comic books. In the 60s, that is when Star Trek came out. Oh, yeah. And 20 years after that, in 1987, you sat me down and said, Ken, let's watch this premiere of a new TV show. It's a sequel to a show I grew up with when I was younger. (laughs) And so by the time Star Trek came out, I believe in 66, you were in your early to mid-20s. What what was it that appealed to you about Star Trek? Of all the – I mean, by that point, television had been around for 10, 20 years. There were a lot more shows to choose from. What drew you to watch that one? I think because unlike, say, Buck Rogers of, of uh, my era, this one had more reality, more credibility, that it, it, the scenarios were possible. I was always interested in, in astronomy, if you will. This pretty much played out the possibilities. It just took from what was already there and kind of gave it uh, realism. And you just said, wow. Actually, I was just reading uh, a couple of weeks ago how we are developing or have probably already developed some type of uh, engine that can break the, the speed of light. I forget, and they, they've been using this term on Star Trek for for from its infancy. And I'm saying, so did they borrow the name from Star Trek, or did Star Trek inspire this uh, engine? I think an, an ion propulsion engine. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, I've heard of those. The the thing about ion engines, I believe, is that they may not necessarily break the speed of light, but they accumulate speed over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And so given enough time, they can actually go extremely fast. Correct. Yeah. And uh, ion engines are actually something that's also in Star Wars. Do you remember those uh, enemy ships that the evil empire would use? They were called TIE fighters. Yes. Uh, TIE, T-I-E, is short for twin ion engines. Oh, for goodness sakes. Yeah. Oh. But you're right. I mean, scientists are still working on faster than light speed, some sort of a warp drive that bends space around the ship. I don't know that they've actually developed it yet, but for us to ever realistically visit the nearest stars, which are four light years away, <laughs> we're, we're going to need to do something beyond just you know pro- uh, propellant like we've been using. What we have. Exactly. Right. Uh, liquid propellant, I mean. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I like what you said about Star Trek being realistic because Gene Roddenberry, its creator, used it as a way to address real-world issues. It was a metaphor for a lot of the things we were dealing with. 
Exactly. Mm-hmm. Like the uh, there's this famous episode called "Let That Be Your Last Battlefield," and it was these two aliens. One was half black, half white. Yep. And the other was half white, half black. <laughs> and this was at the height of the civil rights movement, and Gene Roddenberry was trying to show, in his opinion, how foolish it was that we were arguing over skin color. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm. And then, of course, Star Trek came back in the mid-80s and continued for 18 years with The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, several movies. Yep. And you were still interested in it even at that point because we watched all the shows together. Oh, absolutely. Did you have a favorite series or character of all the different Star Treks? Oh, boy. I think the, the, character, the series that had Picard in it uh, was, was excellent. They, they, were, they were all good in their own right, let me put it that way. But I think this one here kind of rose above the rest. Don't ask me for any specific reason because, uh, they, again, they were all good. So Gene Roddenberry presented a very idealized version of the future where technology allows us to rise above war and crime and poverty. Do you think we're ever going to be on a trajectory where we can have that kind of future in, in reality? Uh, no. No, I think that uh, there will always be some type of conflict. And I, and I find that that was one thing I noticed right away on all Star Trek episodes. They had translators around their neck or wherever they were. And so translation of language was never, ever a problem. But you always had on board, what do they call them, a cultural uh, um, uh, affairs representative? Yeah, they had somebody serving as some sort of a liaison or counselor. Yes, and that's where the conflict was. The conflict wasn't in languages or things being misunderstood or misrepresented. It, it was always in the cultural nuances, if you will, that, that would that would start things off uh, on the wrong foot. That play they played. There was her name was Diana, that little short girl on Picard's uh, ship. Yep, the, yep, Diana Troy. Yep. Yeah, and she was their cultural whatever, and she played an important role in in any uh, negotiations or arbitrations, whatever. She was almost part of every single uh, party that went off board to some other area. But even when intention was being understood, I think the future Roddenberry envisioned had no conflict among humans. But sometimes there was interracial conflict where like the humans and the Romulans might have different desires. And it's not a miscommunication. It's they actually would go to war. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you if you couldn't fight over skin, because here on Earth you have two reasons to go to war, or three: religion, land, very important, or skin color. If you overcame those three issues here, and you, now you go into outer space, now you had all of these god ugly other species, and that, that was good enough reason to fight. To have to go to war. That's that's what you had out in in outer space. And in, in, uh, so so even if we overcome those issues on our own planet, we're still going to find them among the stars. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, because even even now we say, well, 
if if we were trying to communicate with we're sending out communications to other uh, into the stars and they say gee don't don't uh, let them know we're here what if, what if they're a warmongering type species doesn't isn't that uh, that a, a rhetorical question that even another species receiving this inquiry could have don't 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 answer it don't answer the door it might be uh, the boogeyman huh? something to that effect that, that works both on both sides of that door there's a movie coming out this summer called pixel where the pioneer spaceship that we sent out back in the 70s that had a golden disc on it with messages from various cultures on earth i remember that in this movie one of the messages on that disc were the video games that were popular back then, like Donkey Kong and Qbert. And this and the pioneer spaceship gets picked up in the movie by this alien race that misinterprets the message as a threat, and they create real life spaceships based on those video games and send them to Earth to attack us. There you go. And so in this movie there's a giant Pac Man going around the streets of New York City eating everything. <laughs> 40s kick the can 50s comic book 60s star trek 70s is that when you started discovering arcade games because that's around when atari was founded and created pong what was your first encounter with an arcade game on the on a computer oh really oh yeah, oh of course you you had you had pong on a computer um then you had uh that other game where it was like a worm that would go around then around the screen. Yep, snake bite. Yeah, and every time you would do something right, it got a little bit longer, and it kept going and going until you, it just uh, it was outgrew its space, if you will, and you, and you died. Mm-hmm. So they all of a lot of these computer these well, that's why they call them computer games. They got their origin for computers. All right, so let's back up for a sec. You were an early adopter of the technology known as the Apple II computer. You brought home an Apple IIe pretty much as soon as it was released in the early 80s. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, you know, that cost over $2,000 in those days. Not surprised. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, at that point, you were heavily involved in the family business. Was that your motivation to bring one of these machines home? At that time, I would have to say no, but then I went to school nights and to learn how to do programming because they were, I figured if I could learn the basics of programming, there was these new programs that came out called spreadsheets by Visicalc. If I could learn how to use that, I was doing all of the, all of the paperwork for the business in those days with, with these big spreadsheets by hand in pencil. And now here you could do it on a computer and save it to uh, a, a so-called floppy disk. Unbelievable. That was fantastic. So that's when we already had the computer in the house. That's when I started to, tr- I, I went to school nights for, let's see, probably two years. And it, obviously, it's it's evolved into what it is today. So if the business was not the reason you bought the computer, what was? Curiosity. 
That was it, I just I just knew it had down the road the potential to to change the way we did a heck of a lot of different things. What that was, I don't know. It's like learning to ride a bike. You get on the bike, you go and you come to this hill, you know you can climb it, but you have absolutely no idea what's on the other side. But your curiosity eggs you on to climb that hill and get over the other side and find out what's there, even if it ends up being nothing. But I knew that this computer had potential for something. And what was on the other side of it, I wanted to find out. That's a really interesting metaphor because do you know what Steve Jobs originally wanted to call the Macintosh? No. The bicycle. No. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, That wouldn't have been a very good one. I'm glad they talked him out of it. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in a household that had the Apple II and there was an Atari 2600 as well. And you brought these things home just because you were fascinated by them what impact did you think they would have on your four kids? Were you hoping that they would be getting in on the ground floor of these new technologies or was it just going to be another toy? Oh, no, I was hoping that you you would, you guys would learn. To, in other words, I could figure out their potential for my personal use, but I was hoping that you guys would figure out the potential for your use. And it, it did. Each one of you became proficient in your own field with it. And I understand that was quite unusual. If I recall correctly, the high school that my three brothers and I had a keyboarding class, but you had to fight to get my oldest brother into that class. Oh, yeah. And And why was that? The computer keyboard is nothing but a typewriter keyboard. Same if one fits right over the other. All the keys are located in the same exact spaces. So now they they had only a limited supply of these keyboards in the high school, call it typing class. They were just hell-bent on preserving any open slots just for the girls because that was... That was typing. That was secretaries. That was that was going to be their, their future jobs. And if you took up that space, you took up their job in the future. So they would they wouldn't let you in. And I had to go go to the school and to the classroom to the teacher and say, "Hey, you let my son in to teach this. I mean, to learn this, and to, uh, where the keys are and everything like that." The same, and so they ultimately did. They relented. And then you guys even found different encyclopedia sites that, where you, you, you got information for different uh, assigned papers. And you, you typed it all out, and you, and you gave it all a correct recognition, you know? Right, we, we cited our sources. Right. But now uh, you, you, you also had... Uh, we'll say auto-check in those days. And the teacher, professor, the nun, whoever, whatever, would say, well, you're cheating. If you're if that thing's doing all of the typing for you, you're not learning how to type. That thing's doing it for you. And you say, well, you had to type it all up first and then even uh, auto-check it to make sure you have all the spelling. Then hit auto-check to 
That was just a, a third backup, if you will. And they didn't like that. And so we had to argue over. You could that one nun threatened to even uh, flunk any any student who handed in a paper that was done on a computer. So we fought over that. Hmm. There was always something to, to bring it in, into this modern age. I remember in third grade, I was probably one of three kids out of 20 in the entire class who had a computer, and they said that would be an unfair advantage over the other kids. There you go. And so I had to handwrite all my papers. And then ah. a few years later, tipping point was hit, and more kids had computers than didn't. Yeah. Until we're now at the point where teachers don't accept handwritten papers. It's gone from one extreme to the other. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And now they're lamenting, that will say, the slow loss of script writing. That, that, that is going the way of the horseshoe. And what do you do about that? Yeah, there are even some studies that show that students who still know cursive writing get higher SAT grades. Huh. But whether that is a correlation or a causation remains to be seen. Right. Okay. When you said that we found these encyclopedia sites, that obviously predates the internet, and that's because you connected our computer to one of the early online services known as CompuServe. Exactly. And if I recall, I, more than any of my brothers, enjoyed it quite a bit, and that was quite expensive. Yes, it was. But it was learning. And how do you, how do you hold back the, the reins, or how do you handcuff the ongoing charge of education, of learning? You can't. You can't do that. that it just doesn't work. You can put a cap on it, but to put a, put a limit? Uh-uh. Well, I remember on one hand, although you chastised me for the huge bills I was running up, on the other hand, you'd tell your peers that your son was talking to people in Africa and Europe and Australia. Mm-hmm. So even before we had easy access to the internet and the World Wide Web, computers were already connecting people who would otherwise never have known each other. Never would have happened. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as you know, I still go to a convention for that Apple II computer every summer because those people I grew up with online are still <laughs> friends of mine. There you are. Mm-hmm. You've got an international neighborhood. <laughs> well, nowadays we almost all do. I know it. That's, that's why uh, things are evolving so fast is, is because at one time you, you had, we'll say, some scientist working in a little lab all by himself, mixing formulas, not knowing, well, if, we, if I did this with that, what would happen? What would be the effects of that where somebody on the other end of the internet, he probably did it five years ago and he could tell you. Well, now you can. You can find out. You just look it up. Yeah, the, the opportunity to collaborate is unprecedented. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So before we even had an Apple II in the house, or at least this seems to be my recollection of the timeline, I may be misremembering, we also had a pinball machine in the house. Oh, yeah, that we did. Not every kid, unless you're watching the TV show Silver Spoons, not every kid grows up with a pinball machine in their house. How did that, how did that happen? Well, we were running a, a, that nightclub wherein uh, after they bring in, you'd have a private company come in, they own the pinball machine and they would bring in a machine 
those things even then where the costs were prohibitive, they would set them up on your premises and you'd split the revenue. But after a while, say six weeks, eight weeks, it became old hat and you, you weren't making, instead of uh, 50 people playing at a night, there were maybe 25. Then there were 10, then there were five. And then it just sat there and had cobwebs. So they would, that company would now take that machine out and bring it to some other place and start the whole cycle over again there, but bring you in something brand new to, the, to this area. So it's kind of like your comic books. They just kept swapping out old stuff and bringing in new stuff. There you go. You got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so now when they ultimately just didn't have any other place to put them, I said to uh, one of the owners, I said, hey, what are you going to do with it? He said, oh, now it kind of goes into the junk pile. We use it for, we use it for parts. I said, how about uh, rehabbing it? Bring it to my house. What would you charge me? And we... We negotiated a price, and that's how it ended up in our in our cellar. And did they even maintain it once it arrived at our house? Because I know people who today have pinball machines. I think even my cousin Ryan has one. And there are literally miles of cables under the hood of these machines. They're extremely complicated and intricate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, these people, they would come and do it for me because I was a good customer of theirs. With, with, with uh, their locations, if you will. Now, at that point, had you already become acquainted with pinball? Were you a pinball aficionado that you would go to bars or clubs and just enjoy them for some downtime? No. Nope, not a bit. No, they, they, they never really appealed to me. Huh? Once they became that readily available, I knew that it would be another nice, call it toy, for you guys to play with in your own house. So it was more for us than it was for you. Exactly. Gotcha. Because if I recall, my older brothers, just like me, we all grew up playing video games. I'm the only one who still does to this day, but they used to be quite good at these, weren't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Obviously, we all remember your brother, David, with uh, Pac-Man. The pinball places used to actually pay him to not play that one game because it was so very popular with all of the kids in those places that uh, if he got on it, he could run it for several hours on a quarter and they wouldn't obviously make a dime on it. And so they'd give him a bunch of quarters to go play another machine. It was basically extortion. You got it. Hmm. And do I recall that there was some sort of a video game competition that my two oldest brothers were in? Mm-hmm. Down in Boston, there was some touring World of Champions players for different games. They came, they, they played in uh, New York, San Francisco, Chicago. Then they came to Boston, and anyone that could beat their champions, there was like a $1,000 prize. Well, for whatever reason, Boston area and its environs was just chuck full of super champions. And and they beat the crap out of these guys. And so after one night, this, this world of champions, they were in the hole for like tens of thousands of dollars. 
of other kids that had beat them, in, including your two brothers, your two older brothers. And the next day, when they were going to have the, the playoff, they all went down there. The whole place was boarded up, machines gone, them gone, you name it. <laughs> and uh, that was the end of it. Rather than face the music, they just packed up and left town? Right. Why dig a deeper hole? Wow. Well, you know, one reason why my brothers were so good at these games is not just because it was the era in which arcades were everywhere, but also you used to vac- bring us up to Fun Spot to vacation every summer. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Hmm? That was a nice place, too. It still is. I, it's still there with all the same games we had 30 years ago. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Jeez. I remember in my school cafeteria, when we get our little crates or cartons of milk, there'd be a coupon on the side for free tokens at Fun Spot. So I'd save them up all school year, and then in the summer, we'd go up there for a week. And, and one summer, I had a bunch of coupons left over when our vacation was over. And I said, Mom, let's cash all these in now before they expire so that we, we have all these free tokens <laughs> when we come back next summer. <laughs> and Mom, of course, not necessarily seeing the value in making a year-long investment, said, No, because how do we know that arcade will even be here next summer? It could burn down before then. <laughs> That's true. And 30 years later, it's still there. There you go. Uh-huh. It's really quite genius what they did. They, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but they never really got rid of their machines from 30 years ago. And for a while there, they probably seemed pretty outdated. But now they are literally a museum of all these games from a golden era. That's very, very true. Mm-hmm. You just hold on to anything long enough and it comes back in a style. Oh, that the second time around. That's right. So you may not have been an arcade player like my brothers and I were, but you definitely played games at home, as you mentioned, Snakebite, and there were a bunch of Atari and even Nintendo games that you used to play. Right. Oh, absolutely. So what it what was it that attracted you to games? Like you mentioned, I have asked you what it was you liked about Star Trek and all this other stuff. What was it about video games that you enjoyed? Well, the thing is, you got to remember now, I was using the computer in its infancy, for actual work, for, for uh, accounting, uh, bookkeeping, spreadsheeting, things like that. And so the computer itself became a source of, you would get, it would make you tired. And I would need a diversion. So then I found these other things to plug in or add on or whatever onto a computer that gave me that diversion. So now I could have either one that I wanted at the same place from the same machine. That's that's how uh, it, it came about. It probably made the computer more attractive and less intimidating if you knew that you could sit down and either work or play as opposed to seeing it as just a work machine. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what kind of games would you say that you enjoy? You mentioned some specific titles, but would you say that there is a kind of game that you enjoyed? Well, obviously, towards the end there, I, I really enjoyed Tetris. That was because that had very good eye and hand coordination. It required it. good eye and hand coordination. I never liked these uh, role-playing games uh, whatsoever. That was uh, – it, ju- it just didn't uh, – Interesting. Now, what do you mean by a role-playing game? Where 
you you would be the good guy and you'd be going looking to, to slay the dragon and get quarters or whatever, things like that. I, uh, it just didn't interest me. Okay, so pretty much any game where there's like an avatar on the screen, something you're playing as, really? Exactly. Or, or at least some sort of a person that you could identify with. Correct. Now, you mentioned that my brother Dave liked Pac-Man. Did you like games like that? Yeah, I enjoyed that. That was fun. Now, a lot of gamers, they like to build up these huge libraries of games. I myself have over a thousand. Oh, yeah. And every time I sit down, I can choose whichever one I want to play based on how I'm feeling that day or whatever. Right. Uh, Whereas you, for the last 20 or 30 years, I observed that you would pick just one game and you would play that one game for literally years without any variation. Yeah, I'm very boring. (laughs) I don't think it's boring, but what is it that prompts you to fixate on a game like that? Don't Do you ever get bored, or are you, are you trying to get better at it? Your proficiency can only reach a certain point, and then that's it. So it, it that isn't the answer there. It's just it's something that you know it, you enjoy it, uh, and that that's it, it's like why I hate to change and up, upgrade computers or, or software programs, because now you have to literally learn all over again the 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 intricacies of the of that computer or of that program uh, even if it's just a knock, a knockoff of the same one you it's replacing if the one you have ain't broke don't fix it so it's that learning curve that you're trying to avoid you don't want to have to figure out the new game you just want to play it that's right so some other games i remember you playing over the years were centipede or millipede yep we even bought you a special controller for the nintendo so that it was more like a joystick as opposed to a joy pad i remember that and then there was dr mario yep and tetris oh yeah and i tried to get you into this other game called tetrisphere but i don't think either of us really took to it as much as we did to tetris right and then tetris attack came out i think around 95 for the super nintendo and as far as I know, that's been your sole game for like 17 or 18 years. You got it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I haven't played it for probably four or five years. And why is that? Uh, for some reason, my I, I, I just lost interest in all games, to be honest with you. Huh? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't play any of those games. So even though you and mom are very much into your iPads nowadays, and there are thousands of games for the iPad, including a pretty good Tetris Attack clone, you don't really see that as a gaming machine. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And why is that? You just don't feel the need for that diversion anymore? Probably. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to w- wind up a lot of uh, work stuff that just never seems to have, it doesn't seem to have an end. And doesn't leave me any time for other stuff. Are you still using computers as much as you used to? No. So maybe that's why, whereas you used to be on the computer so much for work that you want to be able to use it for something else, you don't really have a need for that balance anymore. Exactly. Now, I know Mom is really into a slots machine game on her iPad. Is that something you play as well? Not really. Because you certainly used to enjoy your annual trips to Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. That was the real stuff. What kind of games would you play when you were there? Oh, 
you had them all. Top dollar and diamonds and you name it. I played them all. So are those slots or are you talking card games? Slots. Okay. Were you also somebody who would sidle up to a card table and play? Not really. So there's quite the age range between your four boys. The oldest is 12 years older than the youngest. All right. And we all grew up with video games, but I seem to be the only one who still plays them nowadays. And I recall certainly playing these games for hours and hours on end. Did you and mom ever get concerned that maybe I was spending too much time playing them? Not really. No. Some people brought brought that to our attention that uh, you were putting in quite the uh, amount of time. But I just said, hey, leave it alone. It, it all balances out in the end. And obviously it has. When you say people brought it to your attention, who do you mean? E- even like Annie Joyce or, or, or Grandpa uh, or di- different other associates of mine. They'd say, Gee, is, he still, is he still playing those games? He really plays a lot of them. And I said, yeah, he enjoys it. If it works, don't, broke, don't, don't, don't fix it. And of course, that lent itself into more educational pursuits as I got older, learning how to program the computer and the like. Absolutely. Now, as a kid, you would send me to the same summer camp my three brothers went to, which was primarily a traditional summer camp with PE and arts and crafts. Did you ever think about maybe sending me to a computer camp? Did they even have those back in the mid-80s? They didn't even have them at that time. It was that new. That wasn't even a, a consideration. Later, when I went to college, I obviously ended up majoring in communications, but it was at your encouragement that I pursued computer science initially. Why did you think that would be something worth pursuing when my older brothers all went into either business, real estate, or law? That seemed to be a knack or uh, an exceptional talent that you had compared to other endeavors, if you will. And, and I was always a one that you, you, you follow path that you, you seem to have knowledge about, or it come, we'll say it comes easy to you. And, and uh, so I wasn't going to push you into something you didn't, you didn't like. That's the worst thing you can have. Contradictory to that, though, I, there was a conversation you and I had a few years ago. I think I was still working as a magazine editor, and I was taking a programming course on the side just to round out some of my skills. And you said, oh, you don't want to be a programmer. That's just doing the same thing over and over every day. Okay. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember that, but that seems almost contradictory to suggesting that I go major in computer science. Well, that doesn't mean that letting you go or directing you into something else doesn't mean that I can't put my thumb on the scale, uh, that I wouldn't put my thumb on the scale to try to at least steer you into probably a more interesting aspect of the direction you were going. Programming, I, I still hold that opinion today about it. Uh, it's, 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 uh, it's quite rote and repetitious, if you will. And where does that opinion come from, if I may ask? Probably from looking at computer programming programs that, that actually run different things and seeing, you see, oh my God, it's, it's either very cumbersome or very, it's, and it's always working towards being obsolete from the day it's released. 
there's there's always something new coming around the corner, especially today, with algorithms and everything like that. There's always something better. Get it, get it going uh, with more bells and whistles and things like that. Now, I remember when I was still a junior in high school, you let me travel all the way across the country to Los Angeles to attend my first Electronic Entertainment Expo, E3. That went on this week as we spoke. Yep. That's right. That's right. This marks the, let's see, possibly the 31st annual or or even more so. Yes. Yes, that's right, because I think it launched in 95 and I went to the second one in 96. Mm-hmm. And here it is still occurring every year. And I've been riveted just sitting at the computer watching all the news and the announcements that are coming out. <laughs> Especially since so many games that they're making now are sequels to games that I was I saw at E3 30 years ago. Not 30, I'm sorry, I can't do math, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But a lot of those franchises are still around and still popular. Yep. But I seem to recall that it took some convincing, to, especially to mom, to let me, as a high schooler, fly across the country to E3 to stay with people I met on the internet. Did you see this as sort of a vacation for me or perhaps getting a jump start on a career? What was your motivation in letting me do such some, something so unusual? I looked at it as, as exposing you to a whole new era that was coming up worldwide. It wasn't just something unique to that venue. It was because you ended up meeting people from uh, different countries, for goodness sakes. And, and you were even uh, interviewing them in, in, in your uh, newspaper enterprise if you will i thought that the experiences you would that you would have there just will could never be repeated anywhere else and this was the place and the time to do it and it ended up being pretty close why is it that you think i still play video games when none of my brothers do i mean like i said we or even as you were telling me we all grew up with this my older brother's could play Pac-Man and Qbert for hours on a single quarter, blindfolded. And yet, nowadays, that doesn't seem to be a part of their lives. Whereas, I look at my television and I have four different video game systems hooked up right now. Yep. So, am I just immature for my age? Oh, absolutely not. You, you, if you could uh, look across throughout America's living rooms, bedrooms, whatever you would probably see people from the age of 60 on down with the same with the same hookups you do at, at your age it's not something that you have a a monopoly on you you may think you you're the the oldest or the only but uh far far be it it, it went on Oh, no. Actually, in fact, the average age of someone who plays video games nowadays is about 35. Okay. So I'm, pr- I'm pretty representative in that respect, but within our immediate family, I would say I'm anomalous. Oh, yeah. That's, I'm sure. You can, you know, you can play with numbers till, till cows come home. There'll, there'll always be some unique slot that somebody falls into just, just at that time or a place or whatever have you, but it, it doesn't occur that often. The one person in our family besides me who played video games for the longest was you. Right. And you played Tetris for literally decades. 
Yep. And Tetris Attack especially has a two-player mode, but you never seemed interested in playing with other people. Why was that? I guess I just wanted to uh, uh, be the only game in town. When I when I played, it was for just my own singular pleasure and not to go up against someone else. So you saw going up against somebody as more of a competitive measure as opposed to, say, a collaborative one or just a leisurely one. Right. Mm-hmm. I mentioned how in the 50s there was a moral panic over comic books. And as you know from my college senior thesis, this is a pattern that has repeated itself throughout youth culture, throughout the decades, rock and roll, Dungeons and Dragons, video games, etc. Video games nowadays, as the technology has progressed, they're able to look much more realistic. So rather than just having Pac-Man, who's just a yellow circle eating ghosts, you can actually look at the screen and see rather lifelike characters engaging in some fictional yet nonetheless violent acts. Even when I worked at GameStop by that time, there was the requirement that certain games could not be sold to minors without a parent being present. Do you think that video games have a negative impact on youth or have the potential to have a negative impact? Of course they do. Anything done to an extreme is, is, is like you say, oh, I love apple pie. You eat a whole apple pie, you're going to be one sick puppy <laughs> at, the, at the last, on that last bite. And the same with some of these violent games. You get into them, and the first hour or two, it, it, it's nice playing on that plane, if you will. But then all of a sudden, it starts to absorb you, and, you, and, and your mindset starts to mimic what you're doing on the screen and what's what's occurring on the screen, the different scenarios. And at some point, you can lose that distinction between reality and fantasy. And at least that's a personal opinion uh, of what is happening today. People, kids, grown-ups, that they're all losing that distinction between reality and fantasy. So what is the solution? Should we make fewer violent games? Well, now we've come full circle again. When when you pass in a school newspaper, uh, should we prohibit anybody from using a computer? Should it all be handwritten or, or whatever have you? I say you just have to let nature take its course and see what happens. At some point, maybe, uh, if it is in, in, in a huge way going the wrong way, if you will, then it's time to, to uh, intervene, but not until then. You, you can't start giving a person antibiotics every time they cough because you think it's going to, it's some huge cold or whatever, and, and they, you, you have to intervene right away. You have to kind of, you, you got to wait and see how it plays out, see what new symptoms may crop up, then make a decision and go from there. But not right, not at every single cut. So what do you do for fun nowadays? You don't play games that much. Uh, what would you say is your prime leisure activity? Probably analyzing stocks. I, I enjoy that economics, 
things like that, it can end up being a, a productive uh, hobby, if you will. Whereas at the end of a, of, a, of, a, of a video game, you turn it off and everything that you've done before disappears. Whereas if you've been taking little notes about a certain company or how much its earnings are per per year, per share, and how many stockholders there are. If, if you're writing it down, you can put the newspaper away or turn a computer off where you've been researching it. You've still got a record of it. And, and uh, if you've gone and made a purchase of that stock, it could turn out to be lucrative. It could turn out to be uh, worthless. Who knows? The way you put it, that when you turn the video game off, everything disappears, almost makes it sound like a waste of time. Well, how do you get that time back? Well, you can never get time back, no matter what you're doing, whether you're looking at stocks or playing a game. Right, right. Mm-hmm. How can you make it? Can you make it have value? I don't know. I think that what you get out of a video game might not be as tangible or financially quantifiable as learning about the stocks, but there have been studies that show that people who read fiction, who read novels, tend to be more empathetic because they have vicariously experienced all these fictional scenarios that they might not otherwise encounter. True. Very true. And I would say as a kid growing up playing all these games, especially games like Final Fantasy, which was a role-playing game where I'm going through this fantasy world and fighting dragons and finding these magical artifacts. And every time I turned it off, I would run to you and I would tell you the story of everything that had just happened. Because every time I turned the game back on, it picked up where I left off and I continued through this 40-hour adventure. Oh, okay. And I I really felt like I grew closer to those characters until at the end, when the story was complete when and I turned the game off, I, I missed them almost. I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly not all games are like that. If you're playing Tetris, that's going to be a very different experience. But even Tetris has certain, uh, just like listening to classical music can temporarily improve your IQ. I think Tetris can teach you certain pattern matching techniques or strategies. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, there actually was one more thing I want to ask you about. When I was a kid, I went down into our basement where we kept all our board games and our pinball table. And somewhere in that pile, I found a box that had been given to my brother Dan for a, as a gift at some point. He'd never done anything with it. And it was the rules for a game called Dungeons & Dragons. Okay. And I just fell in love with the ideas in this book, even though I never actually played the game. Just the concept of Dungeons & Dragons really appealed to me. And you and Mom picked up on that. So when I was in second grade and we were headed to Disney World, for the plane flight down, Mom bought me a bunch of choose-your-own-adventure books, but they were made by the creators of Dungeons & Dragons. Huh. And so that fostered my early love of reading and of fantasy novels. And that's something that you picked up on a year later because you were walking through the local mall and there was a Walden Books there and there was this young local author who was doing a book signing for his very first book ever. He was a nobody at that time because he'd never been published before. And you picked up an autographed copy of The Crystal Shard by R.A. Salvatore. Oh, for goodness sakes. I remember that. And you brought that home to me in third grade, and I tried reading it, and I couldn't because it was too advanced for me at that age level. But then in fifth grade, 
I tried it again, and I loved it. And by that time, <laughs> Mr. Salvatore had published sequels, so I, I bought all those, and I read everything with those characters. Mm-hmm. And then that wasn't enough for me, so I bought all the books he had written, whether or not they had those characters. And then when I ran out of those, I bought every Dungeons & Dragons novel I could find. Wow. And then when I ran out of those, I read every fantasy novel I could get my hands on. Woof. I'm not sure if you realized what you were doing that day when I was eight or nine years old, when you bought that one book. And I don't know that R.A. Salvatore appreciates the impact that he had on my life of being the first person to get me reading, or even if mom understood when I was in second grade a year before that, she bought me those Choose Your Own Adventures. But, you know, I, I still go to the library every week and I'm checking out fantasy and fiction and science fiction. And hmm. uh, the, the, so those small moments very long ago, just you happen to be walking by as this new author is there, had a lifelong impact. Yeah. You never know what fate is uh, got for you coming down the road. Hmm. Yeah, so thank you very much for those small moments. Mm, my pleasure. And, and of course, for indulging in all my video games and buying me a Nintendo and mm. connecting the Apple II to CompuServe. Yeah. And then later on, getting me an extra phone line so I can run my own dial-up BBS, my bulletin board system. Oh, yeah. I ran for a few, for a few days. Mm. Four years. You betcha. Yeah. And uh, in fact, somebody just called me up a few months ago. It, he hosts a podcast similar to this one called Electric Dreams, and he's doing research all about the history of BBSs, and he talked to me for an hour about this BBS I ran 20 years ago. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. Now, I would like to be remembered for all the what I consider important things I'm doing now, and here's a guy saying, hey, I want to talk to you about something you did when you were 15 years old. <laughs> and he asked me all these questions, and very often the answer was, gosh, I don't know. I was in high school. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like he even asked me, why did you use this software instead of this other software? And I said, because the software I used was free. And I was, I was a teenager and I had no money. It's called freeware. Yep, exactly. So before we wrap up, we have several listeners who are people pretty much like me or may someday be old enough to appreciate the things that they grew up with and the things that their parents did for them and they still have video games as a part of their life is there any advice or reflections on games or just living in general and pursuing passion that you want to share if you if it's something that you that's old and you think is out of style and uh, no longer has any value don't throw it out put it away in someplace special some, everything has a value someday, sometime. Yeah, you never know what those touchstones of your childhood might be. And when you dig them out years later, whether, whether or not they have value on eBay, they might have value to you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. So hold on to it. I wish you'd been listening to that back in 1988 when you got rid of my Atari 2600. Huh. Don't worry. We ended up getting another one on a, at a flea market a few years later. Oh, okay. Good. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dad, for giving me this time. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure, Ken. <laughs> Anytime. Thank you. I love you, Dad. And same right, right back at you. We'll see you, Ken. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. You bet. Bye-bye. This has been Polygamer, a Game Bits production. 
Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. Hello, Father. Hello, Kenneth. Hey, it's working on the first try. How about that? Go figure. I guess we finally figured it out. <laughs> How are you feeling tonight? Very good. Very good. good. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Finally have some consistently lovely weather today. Oh, your mother and I were sitting out by the garage. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. Just enjoying it. It was so nice. Nice to see you getting some fresh air. Absolutely. Good. Mm-hmm. So, anyhow. Shall we pick up where we left off? Yeah.